Thanks for tuning in to the Outcomes Rocket Podcast, where we chat with today's most successful and inspiring health leaders. Hey, I want to personally invite you to our first inaugural Healthcare Thinkathon. It's a conference at the Outcomes Rocket and the IU Center for Health Innovation and Implementation Sciences has teamed up on. We're going to put together silo-crushing practices just like we do here on the podcast, except it's going to be live. With inspiring keynotes and panelists to set the tone, we're conducting a meeting where you could be part of drafting the blueprint for the future of healthcare. That's right. You could be a founding member of this group of talented industry and practitioner leaders. Join me and 200 other inspiring health leaders for the first inaugural Healthcare Thinkathon. It's an event that you're not going to want to miss. And since there's only 200 tickets available, you're going to want to act soon. So how do you learn more? Just go to outcomesrocket.health/conference for more details on how to attend. That's outcomesrocket.health/conference, and you'll be able to get all the info that you need on this amazing healthcare thinkathon. That's outcomesrocket.health/conference. Welcome back once again to the Outcomes Rocket Podcast, where we chat with today's most successful and inspiring health leaders. I have an amazing guest for you today. His name is Bill Gruber. He's a president and CEO at Solus Therapeutics. They're a startup company in the female urinary incontinence field. Bill was the president and CEO of Interlace Medical. While at Interlace, he raised over $28 million in venture capital for the development and launch of devices for the treatment of abnormal uterine bleeding caused by fibroids. The company was purchased by Hologic in 2011. Great milestone for them. And Bill has had extensive experience in venture capital fundraising, organizational development, product development, and commercialization for rapid growth businesses. His mind is where the puck is going, and it's a pleasure to have Bill on the podcast today because he definitely comes with that medical device angle that many of you all are interested in. And so it's going to be a pleasure to walk through some of these hot topics with Bill. I want to give Bill a warm welcome to the podcast. Welcome, my friend. Thanks, Saul. Great to speak with you finally, and uh, thanks very much for having me. It's uh, greatly appreciated. Absolutely, my friend. So, Bill, anything that I left out of your intro that you wanted the listeners to uh, know about you? Yeah, the, <laughs> but there's a lot of scar tissue that comes with all of those, uh, <laughs> all those accomplishments. So, I'd love to say it's all rosy. It's, it's not all rosy. There's some really tough sessions in there. Hey, man. And we have a section here in the podcast where we will jump into some of the setbacks and excited to dive into that. Bill, but why did you decide to get into the medical sector to begin with? Well, after college, I got a job with Procter & Gamble and was selling everything from soap to diapers. And after five years doing that, I wanted to change uh, yeah. to an industry where it was something more cerebral and also something where I might be able to have a larger impact on people's lives. So Boston Scientific at the time was recruiting heavily out of consumer products. And ultimately, uh, that's where I went. And I was at Boston Scientific for uh, just about 10 years. Wonderful. Bill, we share that. I actually also started with a, a Cincinnati-based company, Cintas, uh-huh. and I was selling soap and floor mats. Uh-huh. <laughs> and I know the feeling, right? That feeling that, hey, you know, I'm doing a, a great job here, but I want to do more. I want to have impact. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Totally feel you there, man. So what would you say, Bill, you've had some success in the corporate world, you've gone into startups and have had success, some good exits there. What's a hot topic that needs to be on leaders' agendas today 
and how are you approaching them? From my situation, I'm more, I've shifted from big company to small companies, so much more entrepreneurial. And I think there are three things that really have us focused every day, and that's regulatory reimbursement and fundraising hurdles. So Mm -hmm. as we try to build these companies and get products to market, the new normal is that you've got to get through regulatory at huge, huge bar, and then immediately thereafter, it's reimbursement. But none of those happen unless uh, we can fundraise from venture capitalists or family funds or private equity or anybody else who can give us capital to do that. What a great raw response. Folks, it's um, a lot of people go into business and want it to just work. They have an idea it's going to work. But Bill definitely takes us through some things that are super important. Do you want to dive a little bit deeper here on, on some of those, Bill, and your recommendations to people that are wanting to start a device company? Yeah, I think, first of all, the tough part here is to think about the exit before you even begin is, is first, right? I think that yes. one of the big issues is that people start with a great technology and then jump right in and they haven't thought through the whole problem yet. And I think before you start a company, you have to really recognize what are all the risks, right? You have regulatory risk, reimbursement risk, you have biologic risk, right? And biologic risk is if that does your widget actually help a patient, right? And then ultimately you have uh, marketing risk, competitive risk. Are there competitors out there that you're going to have to unseat? And in the end, do you have exit risk? Does somebody wanna actually buy you or does everybody already have a device? And you're gonna have to go this alone and compete with big companies like Medtronic or others. And so I think understanding all those risks and having a plan to mitigate all those risks is super important when you're starting out a project like we do. It's a great call out, Bill. I'm a big fan of thinking time. I learned this from Keith Cunningham and I, I schedule a couple times a week, an hour to just think through risks, opportunities, and it really helps. You know, I feel like we spend a lot of time being reactive in business. And if you do some scheduled thinking time, it'll really differentiate you from others out there. What are your thoughts on that, Bill? I agree. That's my treadmill time, right? My workouts in the morning, I I get all of my work thoughts done, right? And so that's why I can't miss a workout because otherwise I don't get my thinking time. So that's really important to me. I love that, man. I love that you connected it with with your physical well-being. It's a great idea. Can you give us an example, Bill, of, of a time when you guys improved outcomes and created results by doing and thinking things differently? Yeah, I think everyone understands that with medical device companies, we have to deliver new products that are less invasive, less expensive, and safer. You have to have all three of them. I don't think uh, you're going to get by in today's world without having those three. You used to be able just to come out with some new widget and the doctors would buy it and everything was fine, but I think the world's changed. Historically, in the companies I've worked for, we believe that the new normal for product development is to have a core competency in conducting clinical trials. And I think that's new over the last probably 10 years or so. We've got to prove to the world that what we built works. There's two ways to do it. You can do that with commercial success. You can just launch it and hope it works. And then the world all says that this is fine. Or you do clinical trials and show up with data. I think if you fail at the commercial success, it's tough to get a second chance. You end up with a bad birthmark on your device and then selling it again after you've fixed it is really hard. I think that if you start with clinical trials, it's a safer strategy. At Interlace Medical, uh, as well as Solus Therapeutics, we focused on conducting clinical trials to release new products without doing these adequately, I think just would set ourselves up for failure. So, and I think we have three constituents all that want that data, right? So those are the patient, the doctor, and the payer. 
mm-hmm. right? And so with the patient, the doctor, and the payer, we've got to really attract those folks. And the problem as a startup company is that clinical trials take money, time, and talent. And so that's tough because it means more money across the board for us. We just have to raise more, expect to raise more capital, expect to take more time, which uses capital. So that goes back to fundraising, right? So I think that if we get the data, the clinical data, overcoming the hurdles of regulatory reimbursement and fundraising, because the fundraising or the people I get money from are going to want to see that same data, that those three things are made much easier. So I think we just have to develop a core competency again getting data. And that wasn't something that was apparent to me early on 25 years ago when I jumped into this business, but it's definitely the way of the future in my opinion. Yeah, Bill, that's a great call out. In today's market, we're looking at a lot of different options. We're looking at a lot of shifts, right? We're dealing with digital therapeutics. We're dealing with digital technologies and the appetite for venture capital to get into a device company has really decreased Can you talk to that and your thoughts around that, Bill? So let me just rephrase your question. So you're saying that the change in healthcare, the hurdles have changed? Not the hurdles, but what has changed is the appetite for venture firms to invest into medical device companies because of the time frame that it takes to see a return. I totally agree with that. And uh, I would say that uh, not only have we watched many, many medical device venture firms go under over the last, well, really since 2008, we've seen a real shift in where everybody's getting cash. And so um, that shift now has gone to fewer and fewer venture firms. We're now seeing more family funds come in and participate, which is a surprise. We've seen private equity firms that would traditionally only invest in public companies. Those folks are now doing earlier and earlier things because they're not finding the valuations in the public markets that they want to because a lot of this stuff's overpriced. And then that's uh, That's creating a new market, which is uh, strategics. So big companies like Medtronic, Boston Scientific, and others are actually realizing that in order to see more new innovation come from startup companies that are having to participate at earlier and earlier stages Mm -hmm. by moving some of their R&D cash to do more venture investments. So I think in those three areas, we've certainly seen that. That's super interesting, Bill. And yeah, I mean, when you get into a large company like Boston or Medtronic, it really becomes more difficult to have that agility that a small company like Solus has to innovate and why not shift funds to a company like yours to form a partnership. So listeners, think about that. As you build your company, if you're into the device space, think about what Bill just said. These are pearls that you're not gonna wanna forget because in his triad that he talked to you about research and reimbursement and the money, you're gonna to wanna to keep that in mind. Bill, maybe we should level set with the listeners about Solus, right? I, I gave a little blurb about it, but maybe yeah. you could help finish that idea. What does Solus do? What problem do they solve? Who do they solve it for? So the current company is focused on devices for helping women who are incontinent when they laugh, lift something or cough or sneeze. And so the problem there is that it happens to men as well. But as we get older, our bladders are less elastic. And when we have a insult to the top of the bladder with uh, high pressure, that our urethra can't withhold the urine and we leak. And the company, uh, long before I got here, because this was a bit of a restart when I joined, but the company had come up with a uh, device to help attenuate pressure. And what we're doing is simply adding 
adding an air-filled balloon to the bladder with 30 cc's of air. It floats at the top of the bladder. And every time you laugh, cough, or sneeze, the balloon acts as a shock absorber and it reduces the intrabladder pressure to a point below which the urethra can now hold it back. So it just cool. floats passively there, right? And it works instantly. It's placed in the doctor's office and the patients come back on an annual basis and have the old balloon taken out and a new balloon dropped off. So it's it's quick and simple and easy and it's reversible. So that adds to the safety component. So when we go back and look at, is it less invasive? Yes. Is it safer? Yes. And is it cost effective? Yes. So we're trying to check all three of those boxes. Got it. Very cool. Very cool. And as we think about the reimbursement piece, is this something that insurance pays for? Is this a a procedure that is considered more, you pay for it on your own? It's a great question. And I think that's a huge issue. It's probably a separate podcast, actually. <laughs> the issue is that we'll have to go out and get a category one code for the Medicare Medicaid population. Mm-hmm. We envision the whole procedure to be approximately $1,500. That's with Dr. Fee and everything else included into that. But what we're seeing in the market, we're seeing in the marketplace more recently, even in the last five years, is all the, these patients are now in high deductible plans, right? I mean, it's right. $2,000, $3,000, $4,000 deductibles. We have, for example, a $4,000 deductible here, but the company pays into a health savings account $2,000 a year. So nice. the true out of hey, pocket generous. thousand, right? So the problem here is that if we come out, any of us come out with a procedure that's a $1,500 procedure, we're never touching insurance money anyway. It's all out of pocket till we get to that $2,000 or $3,000 deductible. So for us, we'll go get the category one code for the Medicare Medicaid patient. And we'll see if we can get a HCPCS code for those also who may need it. But at the same time, we expect that we're going to be patient pay initially, right? And so we'll have to go to high aesthetic markets, right? We'll be going to markets in Southern California, Arizona, the Texas markets end up in Chicago and Atlanta. So, you know, I think there's people out there with high disposable incomes who have quality of life impact from this condition. And so we're going to go there first. And uh, I think we'll see some good results. Yeah, I think that's really interesting, Bill. And as we think through this segment, I don't know, the thing that kind of pops into my mind is like the vasectomy model, right? Mm -hmm. Like insurance doesn't pay, but you want to impact the quality of your life in a certain way. It's reversible. And you're targeting a market that can actually pay for it. And I think the other thing, it goes right back to outcomes, right? So now that we're all beforehand, insurance paid for it. So we weren't as engaged in the efficacy for cash, right? But now since it's all coming out of pocket, people are, patients are shopping for healthcare much more aggressively and their expectations for efficacy are much different than they used to be when they didn't have to pay or theoretically it was all running through an insurance company. Mm -hmm. And so it's, life's different now. People have higher expectations. They shop for what they want. They want to see the data before they write the check, right? Another reason for more data. So again, as we have watched the evolution of healthcare and healthcare delivery, I think, you know, we have a new constituent it's not just going out and selling catheters to doctors anymore. The patient's a big portion of this. That's such a great call out, Bill. 
Definitely a great call out that we all need to be very aware of. Tell us a time when you had a setback, Bill. You alluded to this at the beginning. Yeah. What did you learn from that setback? So, you know, I've, I've had a lot of setbacks, so, and I've, I've learned a ton. I, I think while I was vice president of sales and marketing at a company called Cortec, which was a spinal products company, this was mm-hmm. after I left Boston Scientific, we were making a peak implant for lumbar spine fusions. Okay. And a group of us joined the company after it had undergone a, a numerous organizational issues and some cash issues, it run out of money, and the product was a terrific idea. However, the investors were pretty tired within the investment. They'd had it for a long time, and they were focused on trying to get the company sold. And they thought the best way to do this was to generate sales as fast as possible. But this product wouldn't approve. It needed a PMA trial. And so the company shifted its approach away from developing that implant into something that um, they knew they could sell, which was uh, sourcing cadaveric bone implants for spinal effusions. Mm-hmm. But we shifted the company over to focusing on coming out with instrumentation and sourcing the cadaveric bone for these implants. And we spent years developing the business. We'd grown the sales from you know anywhere six million, and then ultimately close to ten million bucks. Nice. And the company sold, but it sold for a fraction of what the investors had in it. And I think in hindsight, we should have never taken our eye off the ball, right? They either should have mopped up the company or really uh, focused on getting that product out because that was the big value creator, was that. So I think what happens is if you start chasing revenue in hopes of just getting an exit, you haven't solved a problem. You haven't improved outcomes, right? You've jumped into the same kind of market that everybody else is in. And have you really advanced anything? And so that was great learning for us of you've got to pay attention to the problem you're trying to solve and not just the revenue. That's really interesting. And thinking through it, the distinction made here, listeners, is Bill highlights something very important. Rather than chase the revenue, chase the outcomes. And it just very much in line with why we're talking here is if you're after just dollars, more than likely, it's going to be tough to get an exit. But if you're after outcomes and you're improving them for less money, smaller incisions, less time, you're more likely to have that exit success. What a great lesson, Bill. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, I totally agree with your comments. So what's one of your proudest medical leadership experiences to date? I'd say the work we did at Interlace Medical, uh, this is a company that developed a device for removing fibroids from inside the uterus in women who had uh, abnormal uterine bleeding. And we basically just started it with a thought that we looked at six different areas within women's health, went out and just started talking to doctors, which is the most vexing problem you have, mm-hmm. right? And started asking them, if you had a device to remove fibroids, tell us kind of what, what it should do. How long should it take? How big should it be? How long should it be? Can we use energy, right? Can we use cautery? What is it that we can do? And we just kept asking and asking. I would go to urology and gynecology meetings asking doctors, you know, about this. And in the end, they helped me write a product spec, right? It must have all these things, must be able to move a fibroid of three to five centimeters in 10 minutes or less. You know, they just basically wrote what the spec was. And I had come from the vascular world. I had no, no information on women's health. And so I had to learn it myself. And so once they gave this spec to us, we went out and hired three independent design firms and said, here's the spec, come up with as many ideas as you can that achieve this specification. And they gave us back six 60 ideas. And so we put in a provisional patent on 60 ideas. 
And that created barbed wire around the space that we wanted to operate in. And then we hired, we hired an engineering team, but only after each of these groups gave us a prototype of the one they liked the best, the idea they liked the best. And then the engineering team, our internal guys, took those three prototypes and then started working from there. And then the key for us was as soon as we had a working prototype, we went in and did clinical trials. And when I say clinical trials, we did six patients and we were humbled because the thing did not work the way we expected. We would just get our head handed to us. And then we'd go back and we'd spend a month just grinding through all the problems. And then immediately we'd go back, do four or five more patients again. And it was only after we did this four or five times that we really had nailed the product design. And it was a super awesome. simplistic device. Ultimately, uh, Logic came running and they took what was a $1 million and trailing 12-month revenue for us, and they drove it to where it is today, probably around $200 million a year. It's become the standard of care. Amazing. What a great story. Congratulations on that win, Bill. Thanks. And the thing that I take away from this, and I think listeners, you, you got to think about this too. There's no secret sauce. You know, you just got to do the work. You got to, you know, Bill got out there, he listened to the customer, and he tweaked and tweaked and tweaked and stayed in the game until it worked. And I feel like a lot of people either don't listen to the customer and they fall in love with their ideas or they tweak, tweak and give up. And you got to do both. You got to listen and you got to tweak and stay in the game. What would you say right now, Bill, you know, at Solus is one of the most exciting projects or focus that you're working on today? I think our focus right now is to get the, get our existing product through uh, FDA. And so, mm-hmm. you know, we're a one product company with 18 people here. We're all focused on getting this uh, through a, a new clinical trial and getting FDA clearance and getting it into the market. Once we can get it into the market, we'll work on expanding indications and going from there. But right now, that's our big effort. We are seriously focused on regulatory reimbursement and fund raising. That's my world. Um, very simple. <laughs> Bill, I admire your your tenacity and your focus. A lot of people just want to have it now. And the thing that I admire about you is is just that you see, you see where it could be and you're working with your team to get there. So I just want to encourage you to, to keep doing this because the product definitely solves a, a problem that a lot of people are starting to have. Yes. And in fact, it goes after uh, those people over the age of 50 primarily. And that's a huge population bubble that's growing quickly. Absolutely. So let's pretend, Bill, you and I are building a medical leadership course on what it takes to be successful in the business of med device today. It's the 101 of Bill Gruber. And so we've got four questions, lightning round style, followed by a book and a podcast that you recommend to the listeners. You ready? Ready. Awesome. What's the best way to improve healthcare outcomes? I would say spend as much time as possible defining the problem. Once you think you have a solution, test it to failure as much as you can on a bench top, in clinical trials, long before you go out to market with it. Clinical trials uh, will help you figure out whether it's actually going to work, whether you go back to the drawing board. Test, fail, test, fail. Love that. What's the biggest mistake or pitfall to avoid, Bill? People who start with a technology and run around looking for a problem to solve. Somebody gives them this great plasma energy and then they say, let's look where in the body we can cook something or cut something or (laughs) do something else. They haven't started with a problem. They started with a solution. 
Amen, my friend. Amen. <laughs> How do you stay relevant as an organization despite all the change? I think companies have to stay nimble. I also think that we all have to keep our egos in check. For us here, we seek failure to learn what we need to do to be successful. You always have to be willing to change as fast or faster than the market is changing. As I say to my kids, you got to get comfortable being uncomfortable. And finally, what's one area of focus that should drive everything in a healthcare organization? We love bad news early. When uh, we love to fail here, we love to fail fast. I think if people are always trying to give you the good news that things are rosy uh, when they're not, it's a huge disservice, right? When you can uncover problems early, you're going to win. If problems wait and nobody tells you about them until the end, you usually have fewer options and the options you do have are really expensive. Bill, if I were to ever decide to climb up Mount Kilimanjaro, you're somebody that I would tap to to join me. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> because it's life on the line, you know, and that's what it is with a startup company. And good news early is an amazing thing that I'm taking away from this conversation and sharing with my team. Listeners, I hope you do the same. Bill, what book would you recommend to the listeners? So the book I would recommend comes from more of an entrepreneurial side, which is Negotiating with Giants by Peter Johnston. And I think it's for us, we're a small company and yet we negotiate with huge vendors. We negotiate our exits with huge medical device companies. And that's just a great, great book because it gives you terrific perspective as to all the things you need to be doing to give yourself um, better leverage with the big guys. What pearl would you say you took out of that book that you want to share with the listeners? I think it's developing a network within all the people that you want to work with. You're negotiating with a big company. You don't just have one person there. You need to build a group of people in there that you have good relationships with and good trust with. People buy from people in the end, right? And they aren't going to do it overnight and they aren't going to do it when they're pressured to do it. So to think that you're going to walk in and sell a company to Medtronic tomorrow isn't going to happen. You're going to need, a, you know, a year two worth of developing relationships and them watching you have success and be having candid conversations. Love that. It's uh, the saying, build your well before you're thirsty. Ah, I like that. <laughs> Bill, this has been fun. I always leave these conversations with the feeling that, man, I wish I had more, more time. Uh, we're here to the end, but I'd love if you could just share a closing thought with the listeners and then the best place where they could get in touch with you or follow you. Yeah, I think the big push for us always is know what problem we're trying to solve. You know, with all these devices, there's always scope creep, right? And so yes. come back and really revisit the problem you solve and don't get uh, groupthink going. Stir the pot with your team. Push back. Somebody should always be playing the devil's advocate to make sure the group's going in the right direction and we don't have a bunch of yes men because that just doesn't fly. So best way to reach me, probably LinkedIn. I do get all my LinkedIn requests and I do my best to try to make sure that I'm growing my, my LinkedIn group. And that's how I reach out to a lot of other folks. So I'm a pretty active LinkedIn user. Fantastic. Bill, this has been a ton of fun. Listeners, if you want to get the show notes, the transcript, the links to Bill's company, as well as the links to the resources that he's recommended, just go to outcomesrocket.health slash solace, S-O-L-A-C-E. And you'll be able to find all that there. Bill, just a big thanks to you again for spending time with us. Great. Thanks for having me, Saul. Really appreciate it. It's great to speak with you. Thanks for tuning in to the Outcomes Rocket Podcast. If you want the show notes, inspiration, 
transcripts and everything that we talked about on this episode, just go to outcomesrocket.health. And again, don't forget to check out the amazing Healthcare Thinkathon, where you can get together to form the blueprint for the future of healthcare. You can find more information on that and how to get involved in our theme, which is implementation is innovation. Just go to outcomesrocket.health slash conference. That's outcomesrocket.health slash conference. Be one of the 200 that will participate. Looking forward to seeing you there.